You're listening to Bethany Radio. More content is available on iTunes or online at BethanyBibleLeroy.com. Good morning again. Let's take our the Word of God and turn to Judges chapter 21 one more time. Judges 21 and verse 25. You would just turn there. Judges last chapter, the last verse, if you had to Judges 21, 25, uh, it was, it may seem like longer to you, but it was less than a year that we started the book of Judges, uh, last January, I think it was, late January, and I think we could say we've seen a lot in this book. There is a lot that's interesting here, and a lot of the Lord in this book, actually, but perhaps you remember uh, maybe not. Dale Davis, he, he characterized the book of, of uh, Judges this way. He said, it's, it's so earthly, so puzzling, so primitive, so violent, in a word, so strange, that the church can scarcely stomach it. As with many Old Testament materials, the sentiment seems to be, if we just study the epistles long enough, maybe it will go away, meaning Judges. The church has her way of dealing with embarrassing Scripture. Ignore it. Yet that is difficult to do with judges. It's so interesting. Only people who take tranquilizer, tranquilizers before sitting down can doze off while they read it. And I have not seen too many of you dozing off, so that's, that's a, a good thing. But it has been an interesting book. And we want to look, look back through it. So I want to just begin today looking at this last verse, verse 25 of the last chapter of Judges. So we saw it last week. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I'm just going to pray again as we get into God's Word. Lord, again, we just ask for your leading and guiding through what is spoken, through what we see in this book of Judges once again. We're covering, our, covering a lot of ground, and we just pray that you would work through, through words uh, in your word, through recounting of, of where we've been, uh, that you would work through this time again for your glory, that you would penetrate our hearts where we need to hear um, a certain thing, a certain message once again. May we hear it, and may we glory in our great King and Savior Jesus Christ once again. Holy Spirit, lead us there we would pray as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So last week we really finished uh, just the chapter by chapter study of this book. We were looking here, we ended on this, actually this verse, and we looked at this verse as kind of that, that key to the problem, if we could put it in all caps, the problem of Israel, that, that their own eyes were ruling them instead of the true king. Instead of Yahweh, their eyes, they did what was right in their own eyes. But I think there's value today in, in going back, in looking backwards before we're going forwards here in the season of Advent and the season of Christmas as we look forward to Christ. It's just going back once again to look kind of where we've been. Imagine this today as kind of like, uh, like we went on Thanksgiving vacation and here's some slide pictures of where we were. Like here's the family vacation, here's where we've been. That's what we're going to do today. Most of you kids, not all of you, and, I, and I'm sorry if I missed you today, but most of you kids are going to help us do this. 
and you can stay in your seats, but your pictures are going to help us review the book of Judges. So if we can get the first slide up. So these are our snapshots from Judges. So we're going to look through just kind of our overview writing through the book of Judges. Some verses I'll read, some chapters we'll just kind of cover it, but um, the kids are going to help us out with their pictures here. So we begin our snapshot of our vacation in Judges, although maybe we wouldn't call it a vacation back in chapter 1. So you want to turn to chapter 1 of Judges, all the way back, the beginning of this book is where we're going to start. And we saw here, get my clicker so I'm ready, okay. We saw here in uh, chapter 1, even, even this is before, remember, we got to the specific, the 12 judges of Israel. We saw um, Israel here taking the promised land that God had given to Israel. That's kind of where we started. So God had given it to him, and then Israel needed to go and, and conquer the land. Go in, go conquer the land, take, take care of this, which is what they did. Judah was first. I think we looked at that a couple weeks ago. But again, the highlight here, it was, it was God who truly was the one giving. Yes, go in, conquer, but it was God who gave the land. Now I'm going to start with Weston Collins drew this picture way back uh, in there. And this is one snapshot from that. Hopefully you can see it pretty well from back there. This is one of those where they took that city of, of Bethel and that one, the spies went and that one person was coming out and they got a hold of him. Perhaps his name was Luz. I don't know. They named the next city Luz. But, but they said, if you help us, we'll let you and your family go when we take the city. And Weston's got, I think that's Luz saying, okay. And he and his family are running out while the city is destroyed. And they let him go free. That was part of the destruction of Bethel there. But, but in this very same chapter 1 of Judges, we also saw compromise. This, Israel conquering the land, and yet many of the inhabitants, if you look over like in verse um, 28, for instance, in chapter 1, when Israel grew strong, they put the Canaanites to forced labor, labor, but did not drive them out completely. Over and over again, Israel failed to drive out completely the enemy, and, and this turned, in to be, it turned to be much more trouble for them. The lesson for us, not in, not in conquering towns per se, but in, in dealing with sin is when we spare the sword to cut off our own sin and we let certain sins remain, that we too invite guests to just remain with us and be a, a snare to us and trouble us. So that was some of the, the compromise of chapter 1. And from there, we went on then to chapter 2. And there's this weeping at Bochim. And here, essentially, God asks Israel, He says, what are you doing? And there's this call to them, what are you guys doing? Israel had not obeyed the voice of the Lord. Surprise, surprise, we saw it throughout. And they're going to live among their consequences. Their enemies would be thorns in their sides, snares to the people, as we'll, we'll, we'll see and we have seen throughout the book. In this same chapter, verses 6 through 10, Joshua and the elders die. And so they, they die, and then this next generation comes up. Look at verse 10, chapter 2, verse 10. We, look, we saw this. It says, And all the generation also were gathered to their fathers. Here's, here's that key part of this. There arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. We, we talked there about 
the, the intentionality, to be intentional, especially men in your homes, to be intentional, to be purposeful. Each one of men and women to be purposeful of passing on our faith to the next generation, to pass it on to them. No guarantees, but to be faithful to that task, to, to tell of the glorious deeds to the next generation beyond us and to their generation. That what we proclaim about God today, even in this place, would not just be gone in 10 or 20 years when some of us are gone, but that it would remain. And may we pray for that in this place. To pray for those kids that you see running around and sometimes maybe running too close to your legs and about to knock you out, that this is a generation. And Lord, may we be faithful to tell, think of the glorious deeds that we would pass that on. So we looked at that. But in the very next verse, verse 11, Israel's right back to doing what was evil in God's sight. They abandoned the Lord and they, they faced the consequences of their actions. They do this again and again, and, and yet God, God amidst their waywardness, he, we, we begin to be introduced in this chapter that He's going to raise up judges to deliver Israel. And so chapter 2, in a way, it kind of lays out these cycles in Israel, these cycles, this cycle of corruption in Israel, the evil, they do evil, then they, they face a consequence for that, and from the consequence they, they cry out and they're delivered, and then the judge dies, and then the cycle repeats Malachi, I don't know which sermon this was in, but he pictured this, and he pictured this cycle of the judges. And maybe he's watching on Facebook. So hello, Malachi, your picture's up here. Uh, The circle of the judges here. Just that the judge dies, they worship idols, they fall off the wagon, right? They they cry out. Yeah, he's got the arrows there of the enemy. God punishes them, and yet they beg for mercy, and God appoints a judge and delivers them. Time. Time and time, and the cycle goes on of his deliverance. And yet in the midst of this, even in the midst of chapter 2, and also as chapter 3 begins, God also left some of the nations. He left these for a couple things, a testing that would reveal to them the condition of their heart. You'd have a corrupt heart, a sinful heart, but also a testing that in a way trained Israel for battle. So a couple things as these nations are left, and yet I think there's a gracious testing in some ways of the Lord here. Well, by the time you get to chapter 3, now we're in a new part of the book. So that was kind of part one, kind of intro in here, and the new part, then where we spent the bulk of our time, chapter 3 all the way till uh, 16, are these judges that we begin to study, and we looked at, at, at these judges as we went along, and these cycles of corruption and the cycles of God's deliverance. The first judge to come along was Othniel. And here's Kalen's picture of Othniel. Where's Kalen? There he is, yeah. And uh, here's a picture of him. Lord, help us please, crying out. And God sent Othniel. And through that one judge, God delivered the Israelites again. They cry out. This time they were oppressed by the king of Mesopotamia. God delivers them. Same chapter, so Othniel dies, same chapter, then we find Ehud. And I titled the sermon at the time, I titled it, The Left-Handed Deliverer with a Powerful Word. Here's Weston and Father, right, that I think came up with this title, When Lefty Killed Hefty. That's much more memorable. And uh, this was from, from the other Weston of drawing this of that time when that happened. You remember 
um, God used a lefty, Ehud, to deliver Israel once again from a rather hence hefty, from a, a hefty oppressor named Eglon. And then we correlated this to the sword uh, of God's word to penetrate, sharper than any two-edged sword, the word of God to penetrate and deliver to salvation. Weston's quote, you probably can't read it from there, says this. It says, it is, um, this is Ehud, it is not me who did it, but God. And that's the, that's the story of this book. Yes, they, God was working behind all of these things, and so God saves his people. Well, we went on from there, and you can go on from there. Let's go to verse 31 of chapter 3. It's short enough to read for us, so we can read it again. Look at verse 31 of chapter 3, where we found Shamgar. After him, after Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also saved Israel. Malachi here, once again, I did do Malachi here. He got Shamgar. The score was Shamgar 600 Philistines zero. And uh, remembering that, that judge, foreign judge, doesn't seem like Shamgar was from Israel. It, doesn't, it seems like he was a, a foreigner who delivered Israel. And God used that and he used this, this ox goad, whatever that was. Maybe that's what the ox goad looked like to goad the ox, but he uses this. And so we looked at God taking the tools and, and gifts that he's given us as insignificant as they seem, Lord, what have you given to me? What is the tool? What are the gifts here? And to use them. Use them for what? For the sake of God's, for His kingdom, for His glory. So that was Shamgar. As we go on then, Judges 4 through 5 introduced us to Deborah and, and Barak. Remember, timid Barak. And we looked at the leadership that was lacking among the men of Israel. Barak is timid. He's, he seems faithless as to God's commands to go and fight. I have this picture from Lincoln. It's a picture about pizza. Where's Lincoln at? Somewhere over there. There he is. Pizza. What does pizza have to do with this, Lincoln? You remember? I don't know if you remember, but this was, I used some illustration. I, I was talking to them. I was actually challenging the men. Here's what I said. I said, will you take the initiative to lead your family for us, you know, like Barack, timid leadership. Will we lead our family or abdicate that responsibility to your wife? Will you be the one to say, this house will serve the Lord, or instead say, pass the pizza, I'm heading to the couch, hope all you kids read the Bible, have a good day. Lincoln, that was important. You, you caught the pizza part in this idea of, let us not, guys and, and women, as we, as we train up the next generation, to not sit and just say, pass the pizza. I hope spiritually... I hope you're okay to intentionally invest in that. So, thank you. Pizza has a purpose here. Uh, that's good, Lincoln. Well, from there, from this time of Deborah and Barak, Deborah actually does encourage Barak to do what God has called him to do. And in this section, we see that the Lord's might and the Lord works in the midst of a leader who lacked courage and faith. God worked through this. But then who can forget towards the end of that, J.L.? Do you remember J.L.? Micah didn't forget. Another, another woman actually God used to bring justice to Sisera. Micah Scavel caught this. He caught the battle with Barak and Sisera. I think it was in the, in the plains there and the fighting. And yet we've got that other picture on the other side 
with the tent, remember the tent peg and the head and the big headache and the, and the JL delivering justice to Sisera. That's from Micah to remind us of that. God's judgment would come and He would use JL here through that. Well, from here, if you're tracking along, we're now in chapters really 6 through 9 in the story of Gideon. Once again, Israel has done evil in the sight of the Lord. And they cry out. Keegan here, this is Keegan's picture. I don't know if you can see the yellow and the glory of God. And here's, here's Gideon here with this altar. And Gideon wanted to know, who's speaking to me? Who's the one speaking? Is it you, Lord? Or who's the one calling me to now go? And remember Gideon, he, he was, I'm from the weakest. I'm from the least of, uh, weakest clan, least in my father's house, and yet God's strong presence was with this weak one all throughout, really, his life. And so Keegan captured that picture of the, of the Lord, and, and as the, the angel went up in the fire, and, and Gideon's going, this is the Lord, and there's this fear, and yet he doesn't die there having seen the Lord. And so Gideon begins, he begins himself to cut down the altars in his own home, really the false gods around him, and eventually will call others to uh, follow him. And by chapter 7 of Judges, we find Gideon's army of 32,000. It's like a trivia question. How many? I had to look back as well. How many of the Midianites? 135,000. Gideon's got 32,000. It was against the 135,000 of the Midianites. But the Lord is the one who determines the resources for battle. And he first, remember, he whittled down the army at first from 32,000 down to 10,000, and then eventually down to 300. If you're in Judges 7, look at verses uh, 7 and 8. And the Lord said to Gideon, with, these, with the 300 men who lapped, I will save you. Remember, you know, one was a lap like a dog and this sort of thing, and how we figured it out. But with these 300 men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. We did some math at the time. We looked at, at the, the army as being Gideon's army, really, really 1% of what it had been. It was whittled down to less than 1% of what his army had been. But what does Gideon have? He has 100% of God on his side and thus overcomes this large army of Midian. I didn't put the picture up here, but you remember the, the sheet we handed out at the time and the, the size of Gideon's army and the size of the Midianites to give a visual representation of God and His greatness in this for the sake of His glory. That God uses weak things he uses weak things for His glory. Well, things don't always go well for Gideon near the end because he makes that ephod, remember? He builds it, becomes a snare to Israel and Gideon's uh, family. Molly drew this picture that you can see. Uh, contrast here of Israel from serving the Lord. Kind of the contrast up here. We will serve the Lord. But then the big words, later on, and now they're worshiping an idol. 
It just looks so good at so many times. We will now serve the Lord. Now they're going to get it right, and they're back once again into the cycle. And we spent a few weeks on Abimelech. I think it was in, yeah, as we get into chapter 9 on Abimelech. Uh, Gideon's son and Israel again, they failed to listen to the voice of the Lord. They took the, they took the remote to the TV of the Lord, to the sound of the Lord, and, and hit mute on it. We're not going to hear from the Lord. And they muted him. That was Abimelech. Well, into chapter 10, we're just kind of breezing through, aren't we? We're just flying through the vacation, through the, through the uh, journey through Judges here. Chapter 10, we briefly touched on uh, Tola and Jair, these other, these other judges that are, that are thrown in here, and we'll talk about some others in a minute. And yet these judges as well, they, they judge and they die. And after their death, Israel once again dives into corruption. And yet also we saw the Lord's compassion. I do want you to look at chapter 10, verse 16. I think you're keeping up well. Chapter 10, look at verse 16. And we saw this interesting phrase and wording of the Lord here. This is Israel. They've, they've done evil. They've now, uh, I think it's the, the Ammonites this time, have, have, have come against them. They're severely distressed. Verse 16, So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And you remember these words? He became impatient over the misery of Israel. We talked about this at the time. They're kind of what does that mean, God's impatient over uh, the misery of, e- of Israel? One writer said this, Barry Webb, he writes of this reaction of God. He said, this God becoming impatient over their misery. He said it, it, it was not there, meaning Israel's renunciation of other gods which moved him. Not there. He says, they had done that many times before, only to return to their old ways. It was not there, Israel's, not their repentance that he found impossible to ignore, but their misery. Only the Lord's pity stood between the Israelites and utter ruin. They deserved to be abandoned, but such is his mercy, he could not give them up. That's the Lord in his mercy to have compassion. And so Dale Davis would say here, he said, Our hope does not rest in the sincerity of our repentance, but in the intensity of Yahweh's compassion. Is repentance important? Absolutely. That we fall and we say, Lord, You're holy and I've disobeyed and I repent, I confess my sins. And yet it's not that that intensity, it's God's intense compassion on us and His grace on us. It's pointed out here, even in that little section. Well, chapter 10 leads into chapter 11 and then the account of Jephthah. Jephthah, Sonia, had this picture from here, and I'll explain it as we go in Judges 11. She drew this response, Jephthah here. Jephthah once had been kind of drove out from his people. And remember, then his people came to him in a bit of crisis. They were, he was driven away, that son of a harlot, right? Driven away. And now they come to him in a crisis. And, and he returns to them like, like she's drawn out here. Why, why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? Kind of question from Jephthah to the people. Dale Davis commented here. He said, what is most striking, however, is that Yahweh will use this man, this Jephthah, this son of a harlot, 
rejected by his brothers, a leader of thugs. Remember the worthless fellows that gathered around Jephthah. Yahweh will use this man to relieve Israel. Jephthah was, for whatever reason, a loser. (laughs) Yet the Spirit of Yahweh came upon this loser, and Yahweh gave the Ammonites into his power. Remember what he said? That he, said he said, maybe someday we will see it enough times in Scripture that we will cease to be surprised at the unlikely instruments God uses to deliver us. An unlikely story. Jephthah, no way. God used him to deliver his people. And God's deliverance comes in ways we don't expect. We've seen it throughout judges here. Othniel the elderly. Ehud the lefty, Barak the timid, Gideon the weak. Do you get, it's just on and on how God uses, despite what looks like it should work out, it looks terrible. And God sovereignly works uh, through that. Well, Jephthah does end up being used of God to deliver Israel once again, but in so doing, you remember his tragic mistake, his tragic vow that he uttered. Gemma drew this picture that vow, whatever comes out of my house, Lord, is offered unto you. This picture of Jephthah's his daughter coming out when he came back. He had, he had un, I think, unknowingly offered his daughter to, to vow that. If the Lord should give victory, I'll give whatever. It was a lamentable oath. But then we, we, we talked about it, and, and I think she was truly sacred, truly offered like in death. And we, we talked about the lamentable, the lamentable oath and the lamentable sacrifice that occurred. That, that vows and oaths, they matter greatly. We need to hold them. But if the vow should cause us to sin, to continue to sin or to sin greater, to, to not follow through on that wrong vow, to confess it and repent and move. Well, as we headed into chapter 12, uh, near the end of chapter 12, we came across, again, like Tola and Jair, three other less famous judges. We, we, we kind of know of Gideon, Samson. We just don't know. We don't study a lot about Ibsen, Elon, and Abdon. Wesley drew us a picture here of Abdon, who had the 40 sons and 30 grandsons who rode 70 donkeys. And this just this little section of these three Judges, and we spoke of here that, that they seem like minor judges, and yet they had a major God. Just they get a few words, a few sentences in here, and yet God, too, even in this place, was working amongst them. They judged, and yet they died, and they were buried. And in that judging, in that dying, they point to a greater judge who will never die, a greater deliverer, Jesus Christ who was buried, yes, but on the third day rose again and He lives forever. They point forward to that. Well, our last judge came in chapters 13 through 16 if you're following along in the Scripture and we come to Samson. Here it was Kaylee that drew of Samson. I think this is a picture of Samson with with that lion. Remember the lion that he wrestled and killed and and uh, remember he tore the lion and tore that lion apart and then and then days later walking by in the rotting carcass he found honey in the rotting carcass of the lion i 
Maybe that's a picture of honey up here that he found this. And it, it's kind of a, a picture, I think, of Samson's life in a way. This, this carcass, out of a carcass, you look at Samson's life and go, it's, it's really nothing commendable. And yet God would bring sweet deliverance to Israel out of this odd-looking deliverer because God is sovereign in his, in his work. And we saw that in Samson's life. And his sovereignty led even towards the end of his life. This is from um, Annika, from Judges 16, about Samson. Remember, at the end of his life, Delilah deceives, and yeah, it's my hair, and she cuts it off. He's weak. He goes to grind, grind the, the wheat or whatever it is with the Philistines, but the hair grows back. And all of a sudden, they've got him out for the show at the party of the Philistines' house. Annika captured this. He's got the chains. His hair grows back. He prays to the Lord. The pillars come down by God's sovereign hand. I think it's 3,000. Maybe we're on the roof. 3,000 died there. There was victory over the Philistines. He literally, literally, we've talked about it, brought the house down on them. This is God at work through the rotting carcass. That really brought us to the end of the part two. There's part one and then kind of three through 16, part two, and then where we've been really for the last many weeks, part three, just the the depths of corruption that we've seen in Israel. Again, can we be sure chronologically? I'm not sure that, that all these fit just like boom, boom, there's Samson, and then there's this and this and this to the end. But I think the writer wants us to see just the depths of corruption here going on towards the end. Uh, chapters 17 and 18, we saw this house with no king with with Micah and, and the stealing and then the, the making of household gods and then finding the priest, the Levite, and all the excitement of that and, and everyone doing what was uh, verse 6 in chapter 17. Again, our, our, what we just read at the beginning, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we, we saw this. This was my only drawing to show. Everything is backwards in this land. Micah thought, I've got a Levite in my house now. I've got the trinkets of religion, but the, but the tribe of Dan would take away his Levite and his religious trinkets along with them. But even Dan, in the end, they went up to Laish and they won a momentary battle. We talked about you know, lose, winning the battle, losing the war. They won this battle for a town to live in, but they built a city of unfaithfulness. It's backwards again. They don't look to the Lord. And we, there was a call for success there. What does success look like? It looks like faithfulness to God. It doesn't look like success in the eyes of the world. It's faithfulness to our Lord. And then finally, as we just inch closer to the last verse of this book, we were in chapters 19 and 21. The sojourning Levite, the wickedness in Gibeah, the call to battle and Benjamin who was siding with Gibeah. And then we looked at even just this, this victory over Benjamin. And then ooh, we gave this oath, none of our daughters. Let's go to the Jabesh Gilead. Let's get the dancers from Shiloh. And the, the problems that were going on and the solutions that were not God-honoring, but just of their own eyes, doing what was right in their own eyes. Otto drew this picture along the way. He drew this picture and... I'll try to interpret. I believe this is from Mount Sinai, and mom and dad or Otto can correct me. Somewhere he drew this. This is the people of the Lord, I think, before Mount Sinai. Remember that mountain, the, the thunder and the holiness of God in this place. 
This is the God of Israel, the God of all. He's a God to be feared. He's holy. He's righteous. He gives His commands. And yet, time and again, we see Israel turning their back to this God, muting, if you will, in the remote, His voice, running in the other way to do evil. God was to be their king, but again, look at the verse we just looked at, the last verse of the book. Once again, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Verse 25, it's really the summary to the book of Judges as a whole, even to these these past sermons in this land where everything is backwards. Corrupt hearts just abound everywhere you look seemingly in judges they have victory and then corruption victory corruption victory corruption again and again and again judges deliver them then die and now they deliver and then they die and deliver and and the cycles they need an incorruptible king who will deliver them i came across this which is partly why i was glad to just come back to Judges one more time. In my favorite, you've picked it up by now, my favorite commentator of Judges, Dale Ralph Davis. Pick up a Dale Ralph Davis on this. He was helpful and, and so humorous at times. He's walked almost with us through Judges. But he's, he's going to comment on this fact. If you look in verse 25, look, look at the fact here. It, it says, in those days there was no king in Israel. What does that imply to us, to the author? It implies that there were days where there was no king, and now upon writing this, there is a king. You you see the timing there? So, yes, in those days there was no king, but to the one that's writing says, yeah, in those days there was no king, and implied is, but now in these days, when this was written, there is. There is a king. And somehow, Dale Davis, he's going to write about, somehow Israel survived long enough to actually get a king. Remember, one of their, their first kings was Saul, son of Kitch, actually from, from Benjamin, and then David, and so on from there. But Davis asked this question. I just want to read this little bit to you to reflect on this book and, this, and the people here and their great God. He says this, this question. He says, How after chapters 19 through 21, indeed after chapters 1 through 21, can you account for the fact that there is still an Israel? He's asking, how, how, how is it there's still a people by the end of this book? They, they should have been done the first, just done. That's what he's asking. How, how is this? Here's his answer. It can only be because Yahweh wished to dwell in the midst of His people in spite of its sin. It can only be because Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than His people's depravity. Yahweh's grace is far more tenacious than His people's depravity and insists on still holding them fast even in their sinfulness and their stupidity. And then he says, nor is He finished raising up saviors for them. What a great way to look at this book. We, we see this book and we see all the issues and the problems and the, the stuff going on of corruption. But to see in the midst of it God's 
tenacious grace. That takes us to one of our last uh, pictures and last passage. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 13. Two more pictures, but I want you to turn to Acts 13. As now we come from the judges, we come forward into the New Testament, the time of Christ, the time of the Apostle Paul. Acts 13, I'll be starting in verse 16. We find Paul, it's on the Sabbath day. He's in a Jewish synagogue. And he's gonna, he, he is here in this Acts 13. He's going to bring us, in a very brief way, see if you can catch it, it goes by fast, a brief way, he's going to bring us from looking back in Judges in the Old Testament to looking forward to this time of Messiah. Let me begin in, in Acts 13, verse 16. This is Paul speaking in the synagogue. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. It's the book of Joshua. Now look at this, verse 20. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges. Well, there's a little, little note to where we've been. Judges. Until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. I'll just pause there a minute. Here's David, a great king. But David, nor was he the king, capital K. In David's time, there was a king in the land, but even David saw death and corruption. You can read about that even just later on in this chapter. Let's continue. Look at verse 23. Now, of this man's offspring, whose offspring? David's offspring. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as He promised. Before His coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he says, What do you suppose that I am? I am not He. No. But behold, after Me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. The passage goes on from here, but it's enough for us to see here. Here's John the Baptist proclaiming, after me one is coming. And We're going to actually, in the next weeks and going forward, we're going to look at John the Baptist. Maybe sometimes we read a little bit over his account in the Christmas and the narratives, and we're going to look at him and his mission and his, his birth and his coming. That's in the weeks ahead. But John was a pointer, and he points to the one coming after him, who is the Savior. In verse, if you let your eyes go down to verse 38 below, even in Acts 13, Paul says there, he says, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through Christ, right? Sins, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything 
from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. This is a picture up here, I believe, from Oliver that drew this. At some point in the past few months, Oliver, Oliver gave me this picture. I think Jesus here is the one with the, I think he's got the crown on his head, doesn't he? On the left, shedding his blood on the cross. Nailed there. It's, it's a picture to judges, to Jesus, to the Savior, to God's tenacious grace amidst a depraved people. So tenacious that Jesus would die in the place of sinners. Christmas is about this. The whole Word of God is about this. The hope of grace. God's tenacious grace. One more picture to show you. This one is from Claire that drew this picture. I think it's a cross over a house. Maybe it's a church. I think it's a, it's a house here. I don't know, again, what week this was turned in, but I want, I want to challenge you today with this picture before you. A house with a cross at the center of it. May this picture be the story of your home, of your heart, of the cross there at this season even. God, in the book of Judges, God was not done. He's not done raising up saviors. The Savior came, the eternal Savior, whose gift is salvation for all who would repent and believe and trust in Him. So the question for you today as we end this book is where are you today? Are you living in the pages of Judges, hoping to do better on the cycle of life? Man, I messed up. I will do better again and keep failing. Will you look? Will you let the cross of grace speak over your life? Yes, live for Christ and may that cross be, the, be what's at the center of your life. This is the Savior of whom, whose sandals John would proclaim. He said, I'm, I'm unworthy to untie the sandals of this one. He is the Holy One, Jesus Christ. He's gloriously holy and He's tenaciously, to use Dale Dyer's word, tenaciously full of grace. May we not be like Israel that set their eyes and did whatever is right in their eyes. I don't know. We'll go this way. Here's the solution. Let's do this. I think it's this way. And we reason. May our eyes come back to the plan of God's Word. Messiah, the Savior, the greatest judge of all who will always be a judge and deliver us always of those who look to Him. Let's pray. Lord, we just come and we thank you for this tenacious grace. We're so much like Israel. We, we can't look back on them and say, oh, well, we would have done better. Lord, we're right there in the midst of these cycles. Lord, bring us, thank you, Lord, for the, the drawings of these, these dear kids today and others, Lord, that have drawn through this year that weren't up on the screen today. Lord, we just thank you for them. Thank you for their help in pointing us back to Jesus, shedding your blood on the cross that sinners like us, depraved and wretched though we be, might look to Jesus 
and be justified. That is, by faith we are declared righteous in your sight. Not a righteousness of our own, but through Jesus Christ. We praise you for this. We pray that this hope and this celebration would be not just of the lights of the season and the great music and candlelights and, and that, which is so fun. But Lord, may you reign supreme. May we worship you, Jesus, again this season. I just pray for us again. Would you guide us as a body to have eyes like John to look forward, to point forward after me, one's coming. Lord, may we look to you, the coming one. Recognize we're not, un, we're not worthy to untie your sandals. And yet you've graciously brought us to be your friend and to come and live with you forever. That you are our God. May you encourage us in this way, in this season. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to Bethany Radio, a production of Bethany Bible Church in Leroy, Minnesota.